0: Flying Bull Productions presents Laugh, Literature, and Film.
1: Welcome to the good stuff. Yeah! (laughs) The Laugh Podcast. I'm the L train. Over there is Mr. Two Frames. Howdy. We're your hosts for a Laugh Classic. Episode 48. It's a classic. This is the 1957 uh, anti-war film, Paths of Glory. Mm -hmm. You look, you look quizzed when I said that. You don't think it's an anti-war film?
0: I think it's an anti-stupidity film. Oh, so
1: it's an anti. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I I
0: don't think it's necessarily against war. Huh? I think it was. I mean, we can get more into it. Right. But being wasteful in war. Alright. It's a
1: story of hubris, a story of reckless pride, of, um, indignation, manipulation, um, the vagaries of the, uh, hierarchies in a military system. It's a lot of, uh, deep stuff going on. It's a very tight film, though. Mm-hmm. I think it's 87 minutes long. Written, uh, or based on a novel of the same name by a writer named Humphrey Cobb and directed by Stanley Kubrick. Um, set during World War I, starring Kirk Douglas as Colonel Dax, a commanding officer of French soldiers who refused to continue an attack. This attack results in soldiers being charged for cowardice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then he becomes the uh, defender of them in a court-martial. So this novel... Cobb's novel. It had no title. Really? Yeah. When it was finished, so the publisher held a, a contest. This is according to AMC.com. And the winning entry came from the ninth stanza of the famous Thomas Gray poem, Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard. Alike the Inevitable Hour, the Paths of Glory Lead But to the Grave. So the book was a minor success in 1935. Mm-hmm. And it uh, was adapted. As a Broadway play by Sidney Howard, but it was a flop. This guy, Sidney Howard, thought that it should get its due, so he repackaged it as a film, and it eventually became. Uh, pick it was picked up by, Berna Studios, which was Kirk Douglas's mm-hmm. production studio that he developed. I think Spartacus came out of that. Yeah, as well,
0: and, and Kirk uh, Douglas, I believe, famously uh, told Kubrick. The film won't make a dime, but it has to be made. The story has to be told.
1: Yeah, and he he took one half of the uh, production budget.
0: <laughs> Just his salary. His salary.
1: I, I think mean, he got a million dollars for
0: it. He was such a big name back then. Yeah,
1: 1957.
0: And I mean, he did put his money where his mouth was. He, he stood up for a lot of uh, rights issues, and he tried to make a lot of important films during this time period.
1: Yeah, I admire Kirk Douglas. You know, he was born in 1916, and he's still alive.
0: So you like the longevity?
1: That's a long time, Mister Two Frames. I agree. He's 99 years old. He's gonna be 99 in in uh, December. He's had like he had a helicopter accident in the, in the 90s. He's had strokes and stuff, but he's still kicking. I can't think of any other actor, like dramatic actor, that's lived that long. So anyway, I don't th- I think he's outlived everybody else. That Oh no, there's one other actor that's 87 years old. We'll talk about him soon. He's one of my favorite characters. Yeah, I mean, he makes
0: actors. people like Mel Brooks look like a spring chicken. Yeah. I he, think Mel Brooks is 88.
1: <laughs> he gets in the he also goes into the public uh eye. I mean, he he mm-hmm. he, he doesn't hide himself necessarily. He's the uh, father of Michael Douglas. And uh Even Michael Douglas looks kind of old now. Michael Douglas
0: is in the 70s. Yeah. So. What did you think of this film? Um, I like this film. I actually just caught up with it a month or so ago. Uh, I liked Stanley Kubrick a great deal. This is a movie you've been talking to me about for quite a few years. Telling me that I need to go see it. I just never made the time to go and watch it. Um, I was really into this. I think. Uh, This film comes in the middle of probably one of the greatest five movies done by a director ever. You know, five movies in a row. Okay. Greatest directorial run.
1: So, are you... Counting The Killing in there? This is for Kubrick?
0: Yeah, I mean, The Killing is 56. The following year, in 60, he made Spartacus, which is a film I love for many reasons. It's on my
1: list of shame.
0: Uh, 62 is Lolita. 64 is Doctor Strange Love. And 68 is 2001 A Space Odyssey. I realize I just listed a dozen, or half a dozen movies. (laughs) But I don't know where you want to begin and end that five movie streak. Maybe you'd say that this is the six pack.
1: Yeah, it's a good six-pack for you to sit back and watch. Uh This is probably the least known of all of the movies, though. Like, I hadn't heard about it, and I don't remember hearing about it until I started uh looking for a companion piece for All Quiet on the Western Front. So I didn't want to show that movie mm-hmm. to my students because I don't think it does the book justice. And I like how this feels with related themes, but it does it in a very different way. Like the the corruption of power and uh, the manipulation that happens in this movie is is different than the manipulation that they talk about in All Quiet on the Western Front, but it's played out in the same sort of arena.
0: Well, this you get to see the bureaucracy, and in, in All Quiet on the Western Front, all you see is from the infantry uh, soldiers. Yeah, perspective. they only kind
1: of talk about it.
0: Yeah. Um, so that's a very one-sided view of the war, where this you get to see just the hypocrisy of the whole thing, which is a theme you see in a lot of Kubrick's films. Uh, you know, probably most famously, Doctor Strange Love*, but you also see it in, um, Clockwork Orange to some extent. Mm-hmm. You know, with the way the doctors are in that film. So, I, I do think this is a theme that Kubrick likes to play around with quite a bit.
1: Well, he does it extremely well in this movie. There are two key plot triangles mm-hmm. in terms of like groups of characters that interact with each other in a variety of ways there's the Colonel Dax played by Kirk Douglas and uh, General George Broulard played by a uh, silent film matinee idol Adolphe Manjou. Uh he's the elder of the two and the more higher ranked of the two generals involved and then the sort of evil um, character is played by, uh, George McGreedy mm-hmm. and it's, uh, General Paul Miro. He's the one probably most responsible for the events as they unfold. And that, that sort of triangle of manipulation is played out over several scenes and the, the way that they interact with each other. Everything is a lie almost except for Dax. Ev- all the other characters are, have some other motivation that's only thinly veiled to the audience so you wonder if they are aware of their own hypocrisy as characters Kubrick sort of plays around with that and Dax has to confront it when he's almost uh, removed from his command he has to he has to see and call it out and then he knows that there's there's a futility to that in terms of fighting the, the bureauc or the hierarchy um, I, I Probably of all of the characters, the one that I find most intriguing is, uh, the Broulard character. And I know it seems weird, mm-hmm. but every time I see his performance, and I've probably seen the film maybe a dozen times now, I, I notice something a little bit different in it. And he, and just the way that he kind of plays with these characters and the little actions that he takes. It's 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 striking. I see such a well written character and so well developed with his well. You said relatively the small amount. Other of
0: general there. is the evil character yeah, in this film. Mar-
1: well, you might think otherwise. But
0: Brillard, I mean, he is kind of the puppet master in this film. Yeah, he reminds me of a, another character from Lawrence of Arabia, the British government guy. You know, who's there as an advisor. Mm-hmm. He's doing a lot of the same things, just kind of pushing and prodding people into the right direction.
1: Right. Well, yeah. He's got points, though. I mean, he he knows he he can make an argument about.
0: But you also his see perspective. He, he, he is physically the smallest guy in the whole cast, and yet he's risen to the highest rank, where Kurt Dudley is the right. picture of manliness, General Moreau. He has the facial scar, mm-hmm. which back in the turn of the century was a sign of your bravery. You know, it definitely shows he's been in combat. He's seen a lot of action. You cannot question this guy's courage. But this little peep squeak, who's the, you know, three star general or so, I think that'd be about his equivalent American rank.
1: He has three stars. I think we, yeah, because Miro was going for his uh, second, or he's on two stars. We yeah. actually counted him in class. I, st- I froze the, uh, the.
0: In my understanding, thing. is the French military is about the same. I mean, the ranks yeah, are I the think same. Four star general, and, th- and that was something I had to talk to my classes about, um, and, and tell them: here's the list of the ranks, and most people are trying to get promoted. Uh, the general's aide to camp is a major; he's trying to make uh, colonel. Mm-hmm. So he's always trying to put down Kurt Dudley's job and right. try to make Kurt Douglas look bad because he wants to be the next colonel.
1: Except for Dax. I mean, the, the Dax, and you could say Paris in the other sort of triangle, the, the other, um, at at the soldier level, there's a different thing. But yeah, I put the ranks up there as well because that's very important. Um, Broulard is a member of the general staff too. Mm -hmm. And these are the people most responsible for sort of organizing the war effort. The futility of the, of the, uh, trench warfare is, highlighted very well in the film i mean um they actually go into the trenches with a one of my favorite tracking shots of all time i think we talked about it in the tracking shot episode way back in the early uh laugh podcast iteration if you can remember because um they had to make the trenches a little bit wider than they were normally so that they could get this uh well, back then the cameras were a lot bigger. They mm-hmm. had to be able to get them down these trenches. And the way that that scene plays out is a microcosm of the entire movie, just in terms of the manipulation. And the 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 three characters that he meets are three the three uh, people that are brought up on charges later. You wouldn't know that until you've seen the entire movie.
0: Yeah, Kubrick tried to sprinkle them all through, and then famously he wasn't able to put them all in the battle scene.
1: Oh, why is that?
0: Because the guy who played Pharoah, Timothy Carey, um, faked a kidnapping to try to get a bunch of publicity and to raise his fame. (laughs) And he kind of had a falling out with Kubrick after that. Apparently he was a prima donna quite a bit on the set.
1: Uh, He was trying to upstage um, Douglas in the (laughs) uh, court-martial scene. And Douglas didn't like his performance at all. I think... Well, Kubrick was famous for having multiple takes and uh, Douglas would call him out like publicly He'd try mm-hmm. to humiliate him for his performance and uh, Kubrick just let it run let it run you know they do multiple takes and then finally I think at one point Kubrick went to that character or that actor Timothy Carey and mm-hmm. told him uh, yeah, keep it up I want him agitated <laughs> so you see that anger Rising in, uh, Dax's character in that scene, it's not just acting. He's really angry when he gives his closing summation. So, um, yeah, I got, that's another interesting thing about the way that Kubrick manipulated his, his actors and famously got them all worked up in various ways. Well, he I mean, was like Broulard.
0: Oh, he was very method. Yeah. Uh, Shelly Duvall on The Shining. I mean, he terrorized her. So that, you know, she was losing her hair by the end of the production huh. and making people do take after take after take. And, yeah. you know, sometimes just trying to wear them down. And then later on they'd find, oh, yeah, I took take number four. Mm. But I made you do 50 more.
1: This movie compared to uh, Full Metal Jacket,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which do you prefer?
0: Uh, Full Metal Jacket. Really? Yeah. You, so you. I mean, but I've also seen Full Metal Jacket more, and I just have a sweet spot for Vietnam literature.
1: Huh. All right. So Full Metal Jacket's a ten, and this is a nine.
0: Yeah, I mean this is, this is still a really good film. I would say for World War One, maybe my favorite World War One film.
1: There's not that many good World War
0: One movies. The the problem with World War One films is most of them were made in the twenties, thirties. And then when World War II broke out, we just started doing World War II films.
1: I'd like to see... Sergeant S-
0: York's maybe the best World War One film I've seen.
1: Have you seen Sergeant York recently?
0: Not for a good oh, time, 12 years. it is
1: slow. Slow. Hard to watch.
0: I mean, it's a different style of filmmaking.
1: Um, I'd like to see what was going on in German cinema at the time and their reaction to it, to these ideas and concepts. I bet you there are some good foreign films. Mm-hmm. There's a movie called Regeneration about the two poets that we study in 10 honors, um uh, Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon. It's actually more or less the story of the psychologist that's involved with the practice of trying to put these officers together psychologically, put them back together so they can go back out into the front, <laughs> into uh-huh. the front. So, that's actually a pretty good movie, but it's a little bit different than your standard warfare. Your standard warfare. (laughs) Huh. No pun
0: intended. Yeah, I mean, and and this film has one battle sequence in it? It's... And even then, it's not much of a battle sequence as just uh, showing what type of misery these guys go through. Yeah,
1: it's pretty brutal, though. I mean, it doesn't really resonate with today's audiences. Like some of the special effects and some of the the things that are happening, but the idea of i mean just filming that in the in the fifties, they say it was pretty accurate I can believe it in terms of the attack,
0: and then I mean you had talked about earlier this is only an eighty seven minute film, yeah, it's the very attack tight. sequence is an easy five minutes, yeah, it might it goes on and on, and I think before you've told me you think it's a little too long.
1: that might be one of the small drawbacks I have. With the film. It, maybe not its length, but it's. There's some continuity issues and some time manipulation that they do, some some yeah. little sequences there, but it's a slight problem I have. See, I love it.
0: how long it goes on because you really feel like they're about to get to the other side and you see these buildings pop up uh-huh. or, you know, ruins. And you're like, okay, they must be getting pretty close now to the other side. And you see Dats look. And they're still, they're not even halfway to the anthill. They
1: don't even make it out of their own wire. Yeah. There's still, there's still the no man's land. They hadn't even made it into no man's land. Yeah. Once they get past the
0: wire. You realize why this war was stagnant and the fronts did not move very much. And why we had to come up with the tank. Well, Churchill came up with that. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But, But I mean, why the war had to evolve.
1: Yeah, I don't think that it even made much of an impact, though, the tank. I mean, it made an impact, but it was towards the end of the war, so it wasn't able to...
0: Well, I thought that was what helped get the fronts moving some. I mean, that and also just... Yeah, I we think couldn't the, keep people supplied.
1: Yeah. Well, the Germans couldn't. Yeah. So the Germans had to... I mean, they they had been stretched too thin. yeah, I don't think that the tanks made as big an impact as they did, obviously, in World War II. Oh, yeah. So... You know why they're called tanks? Why? Because they disguised these giant machines as water tanks. No, the Germans had huh. no idea what they were. They thought that they were water tanks to deliver water to the troops. That's how oh, they. Okay. So that's why we got the term tank. So I didn't know that either.
0: No, I, I like that.
1: Um. All right. So back to Paths of Glory. There's a third or a a subplot in the middle of the film, maybe in the first 20 minutes, where you have uh, Lieutenant Roger, Mm -hmm. played by Wayne Morris, um, and...
0: Ralph Meeker?
1: Ralph Meeker, Hmm. who plays Paris. And then there's another character that is the lowest ranked of the three. So you have uh, Corporal... You have a lieutenant, and then you have a private. And the corporal is sort of the uh, the hero of this scenario. He's the Dax role. Well, maybe not necessarily the Dax role, but he's the one that sort of acts as a voice of reason in their reconnaissance mission. That goes a little long, too. Mm-hmm. When they actually go out into no-, no man's land, this uh, Lieutenant uh, Roger leads these men out gets scared and he winds up uh killing with a hand grenade it's
0: mm-hmm.
1: always a pretty good scene when they when paris goes to to check on him and there's the uh like the the symbol or the tiampana or whatever the <laughs> and then you see that he's still smoking and the kids have to figure out what happened <laughs> yeah. they don't read movies as carefully as they probably should you have to kind of explain to them yeah
0: did that guy get hit by a grenade yeah. i don't even understand why they asked that question because clearly they've already thought it <laughs> right why, why don't you have any confidence so in how you're reading the film inserting
1: themselves into the movie i suppose
0: um no I, I i like that scene i like that guy ralph meeker who plays Paris because there's a uh, Alfred Hitchcock short that I show my ninth graders and he's much better acting in this. I also like that we see the various levels um, that go on in the war and even that scouting in the middle of the night, that seems kind of pointless itself. Yeah. like You you don't really understand why they have to go do this. Um, So as much as, you know, Paris wants to get mad at Roger, Roger's just following orders, going out there. It was stupid that the three guys were out there anyway.
1: Right. But up to the point where he splits up the night patrol was when he first really begins to question him. Mm-hmm. And th- I mean, that they should have never done that. He should have never done that. But then just randomly throwing a grenade <laughs> because he gets screwed. Come on. That's ridiculous. And then Paris shows, you know, that he is an honorable, brave person by running into that where that explosion was. I mean, he wasn't really legitimately He shouldn't have been legitimately scared by anything. And then he tries to write up the report to show that they're all dead. And, uh, Roger is surprised when, me, uh, when, uh, Paris walks in. He's like, oh, Paris, I'm so glad to see you. Yeah, it's just dripping with sarcasm, you know. Not even sarcasm, but it's like this veiled, ironic, uh, what's it called when a person is over the top and the way that they approach you but you know that they're not really happy to see you
0: oh yeah it's um it's it's something false false exuberance yeah uh yeah
1: that guy uh Wayne Morris was a uh a highly awarded pilot in um in World War II he joined the Naval Reserve became a Navy flyer in 1942 and left behind his film career and uh when he came back, because he was a very popular juvenile actor and was like on the role to being a leading man. Think about, um, someone like, uh, Snake Pilsen.
0: Uh, Kurt Russell?
1: Yeah, someone like, think about someone like Kurt Russell. And, uh, that's sort of where he was when he went off to become this, uh, naval war flyer, huh. Um, was awarded four distinguished flying crosses. Ralph Meeker, on the other hand, went. he went into the Navy and got discharged with a neck injury. That's the Captain, uh, Corporal Philippe Paris. Um, so, interesting stuff going on there.
0: So now then, a uh, lot's also been made of the courtroom scene. Um, I've seen this almost make some top lists. Like, the lists of the top 50 courtroom oh. moments in films. This is an honorable mention.
1: Oh, this is 51?
0: Yeah, this would be 51.
1: There's not a whole lot of tension there because there is an inevitability to it. The attack against the Ant Hill goes bad or goes poorly. The troops retreat back to the trenches. At some point, General Moreau suggests that his commander or his artillery commander fire upon his own troops to get him out of the trenches when they refuse, right? And mm-hmm. he calls out a, uh, a court-martial for all of them. He says he wants to kill, what, 10, man, ten men from every regiment?
0: Yeah, he wants he wants a, a, to decimate them.
1: Oh, that's every 10th man.
0: Yeah, but yeah. I, I think they're trying to invoke, apparently the Romans used to do that if there was yeah. cowardice.
1: The French did it, too.
0: Yeah, the Romans is more messed up. You would draw lots, right? the ten men, and then whoever lost would get beat to death by the remaining nine men.
1: Hey, yeah, that's pretty brutal. Yeah. Um, in this case, he wants to get rid of every tenth man or ten men from every regiment. He says they should all be shot for cowardice.
0: Dax well, Moreau says, wants it.
1: Moreau wants this. Mm-hmm. Broulard wants it, too. I mean, someone's got an answer for this.
0: Well, Broulard needs a scapegoat.
1: Yeah, he, he's more than willing to let the, or he needs multiple scapegoats. Yeah, yeah. Deck says, if you want to make, uh, this, this is to make a, um, statement, an example, yeah. yeah. He wants to make an example of, uh, these people by killing them. And uh Dax says, if you want to make an example of it, why don't you pick me? Why don't you pick the officer most responsible for the failure of the attack? Pick me. And Brulard's like, we can't make this about officers? So, I mean, that yeah. underscores the general theme of the movie.
0: Well, I also love all of the conversations. You always want to have one more line. You, you always put yourself in that character's position. You always think you would retort something. right? You would never just drop the issue like these characters do, and that's what's so infuriating. And oh. I think that's what, you know, why Kubrick worked so well with satire in this uh, vein.
1: But also, I guess that there's not, at some point, you can't say anything else. You just have to accept it and go. <laughs> Especially in this, the way this military uh, yeah. these military interactions are set up.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it's regimen. Okay, you've said your piece. No, I'm not going to listen to that, even though it makes sense. And my retort doesn't. Yeah. Well, that's what's so infuriating. And I, I heard a lot of my kids kind of snorting at those moments in the film, just like, "Holy crud!"
1: Yeah, because they don't understand that there's a point where no means no, and you can't argue with me anymore.
0: Yeah, but it's also the stupidity. I think that comes up more in the courtroom case.
1: Yeah, we actually am I am a series of questions where they really have to analyze what's going on in that sequence of events. So anyway, three, uh, Dax whittles it down to three, one person from every battalion. Mm -hmm. And of those three, Paris gets chosen by, ironically, Roger, the same guy that wants to sort of hide his own uh, fault in the war where, you know, he may have killed... Another guy is picked is, um, we got, we talked about him, um, Timothy Carey, plays the uh, Farol character, who was picked because he was a social undesirable. Now, what do you think that means?
0: I just don't think his commander liked him, for no discernible reason.
1: See, I think it means he's gay.
0: Yeah, I, I thought I remember hearing him at one point later in the film say that he has a family.
1: No, he doesn't.
0: Went, well, he might be lying, too. He might just be saying anything in that moment to try and gain any sort of sympathy. Right. So.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think he says that, though. All right. I could I could, I could be Paris. mistaken. Um, They ask him if he has a wife, and he says Pff, no. <laughs> and then he acts very strange. My kids pick up on it, too.
0: Yeah, but see, I chalked that up to the overacting that we talked about before with that guy. He is doing William Shatner before there was Shatner.
1: Yeah, he is sort of over the top. Yeah. And so- the third person is this uh, private Pierre Arno. He's cast as Joseph Turkel. He is famous for being one of only two actors to work with Kubrick three times. Hmm. So he was also in um, The Shining and The Killing. You might also know Turkel as the uh, Dr. Eldon Tyrell. In Blade Runner, uh huh, yeah.
0: Oh, uh, the guy who comes up with the replicants, yeah.
1: This is, he's he that that's that's him. Oh, okay. A much older, Arno.
0: Oh, I like that. I like that.
1: He's picked randomly. He's picked by a lot to be uh, des or to be uh, executed. And Dax is their defender.
0: <laughs> well, and Dax has a great line. I mean, he cuts them off. And that's a situation where you don't really have a retort. They're all trying to plead their case, and that's just like, it doesn't matter. Right. You're here, we can't change why you're here. We can just deal with why you're here and try and mount a defense. Yep. He has a, a great line that cuts them off, that ends the argument, but doesn't in a satisfactory nature. You know that's what one of the things I like about Kirk Douglas's character—he always makes logical sense in this film.
1: There's a lot of logic in it.
0: He, well, he's one of the only characters. Who well, makes logical
1: Broulard's sense. logic is evil, but it's still logical. Yeah. There's another character, du- uh, Kodak. I don't know who the actor is that plays him, but he tells Paris, "Look, you're going to have to be a man. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to shore up. We got a lot of press out there. Do you want to? You're going to go off to your execution. Do you want to be remembered as a sniveling fool?" Just suck it up and deal with it.
0: Well, and I like he's he's pragmatic in that scene. It was, he's giving Paris this advice, and while it does help out the French army to not have Paris be a sn- sniveling coward, his buddy's just looking out for him and giving him pragmatic advice on just how to best uh, wither the storm. Right, or weather us. the storm, not wither the storm.
1: Yeah, a um, lot of us are going to be in this in the same boat. A lot of us will be dead too. You're just going to die tomorrow.
0: Yeah, I mean. He's a slightly more positive Eeyore. If you enlisted Eeyore into the French Army, <laughs> that is him.
1: Major Kodak? Or yeah, the, Major Kodak. Yeah. He's Eeyore. I like that guy. I like his eyebrows. His giant eyebrows. The kids freak out on that, too. It's pretty impressive. Do yeah. you think you watch him? Yeah, probably. There's some good facial hair going on. Yeah.
0: So you know, we get to the court case. Uh, one of the things I love about the court case uh, as a teacher is, the kids have no idea of what a kangaroo court is. And I, oh. and I think they want to believe that court is fair and just. And Right. In this scene, it is anything but.
1: They think it's a forum for justice. Yeah.
0: And, no. it, and it takes them a while to figure out that that's not going to happen. But they still believe it to the end. And um, to skip to the end. They don't tell you what the verdict is. They cut that fat out.
1: Because it's inevitable. The yeah. verdict was already decided.
0: But I had a kid go, uh, did you skip ahead? <laughs> and it's no, you know how this ends. And they're like, no, we don't. Yeah, you do. You've yeah. just watched it be a kangaroo court for the last 12 minutes. Yeah. You don't, it, it's obvious. And they cut right to, um, the guy's preparing to yeah, do the execution Kodak. to go, you know, going over what the orders or Kudek
1: are. Or or whatever is. You know, is.
0: that's one of the things I love. They only give you the important parts.
1: Yeah, he cuts out all the extraneous BS. But he also leaves hope. There's always a little bit of hope, even up until the very last bit, because you're not really sure where these little pieces of information are going to go. Everybody's got a little bit of information that they want to use later. And just the way that Kubrick has these characters come in and out of the scenes is enough to make you uh, really appreciate a well-told story like this. Um, so what else about the court scene?
0: Uh, I mean, my favorite part's at the end when uh, Paris says, you know, when they're asking him, why didn't you fight? He goes, well, I got knocked down. I got knocked unconscious. Did anyone see you? No, they were too busy dying. Right. Oh, it's a shame. No witnesses <laughs> to back up your story they don't refute the story. They just right. go, you know, you have to prove your innocence. Right. Um, and he goes, well, I got this scar on my face and you know, my kids are like, <laughs> yeah, you could have put
1: that on there <laughs> later. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Yeah, true. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I could have.
0: <laughs> and, and that's when the kids really start to understand that it's a kangaroo court. And that's just such a great bit of dialogue. And, it, and like you said, it plays with your emotions. You go up and down on that. You know, you think eventually logic and reasoning will have to win out.
1: The uh, head of the, the head judge, the chief judge of the court martial, played by Peter Capel. I thought it was Pete Postel White. Remember that guy? No. He died recently. He was in uh, The Town. Okay. He was the, the, the florist in The Town. He's a character actor. He looks a lot like that Pete Postle White, I think. is his name. Um, he's also the narrator of the opening sequence, that chief judge. And it's just, he cuts off the at every point. Every
0: I wish we had gotten a little bit more of his story. And but he's he... a
1: functionary. He's just there to advance the idea that this is Moreau's uh, sort of kangaroo court I put together. It doesn't really matter who it is that's there. They're just going to.
0: But wh- how is he benefiting from this?
1: Oh, you wanted to see whether or not he had a yeah, backstory. What, yeah, what, he's got have some motivation, advance.
0: you know, or how he feels he can twist this to advance mm-hmm. his own career.
1: I don't know. I think he, I, I I appreciate the idea that he's just a symbol. He's just, he's just representative of that. I mean there's nothing just about the uh that no, I, scene. I
0: understand that, but I like that the prosecutor is um the is General Moreau's um aide de camp. Yeah. So, you know, I like I understand why he's um being the prosecutor, why he's doing this. Because it's very clear that he's going to please the general and help advance his own career by doing this. Right.
1: Another uh Key element to the execution, the inevitable execution, is uh, Dax making Roger the person that leads the uh, the firing squad. And he's like, well, wait, I don't want to do that. I've never done that before. He goes, nah, the job's yours. <laughs> the guy's like, well, what does it involve? Well, it's easy. Aim, shoot, fire. When everything's done, you go and you put a bullet through each of their heads. I really want to be removed from this, sir. Yeah. <laughs> nah, job's yours. Yeah,
0: yeah, but I also like how Kubrick can speed up the film and slow it down, but he doesn't mess with the frame rate. Uh, la- well, or Two weeks ago, we were talking about Mad Max Fury right. Road and how George Miller messes with the frame rate to change the storytelling and so that you can understand or not understand something. Kubrick is playing with the speed of the storytelling, too, but he doesn't mess with frame rate. He does it just through the editing process and by cutting all the uh, extraneous fat from a scene.
1: Yeah, but they wouldn't they wouldn't have played around with frame rate in 1957, would they?
0: No, but I, I think Kubert's doing the same thing. He's playing with your emotions.
1: There's the ballroom scene where there's this waltz that plays and you see McReady, or, or sorry, Moreau in the corner dancing with a woman. And then... Uh, There's that long tracking shot through there. That's also another one of my favorite tracking shots where the functionary walks up to uh, Broulard and gets Broulard because Dax has some information for him. And that whole interaction with Broulard and Dax, both then and then following the uh, execution, Mm -hmm. are the probably my two favorite parts in the movie. This is where I'm making the argument that Broulard has some points. Even though they're sort of evil, they're still... There's still some semblance of logic where he says, We're the, we at the general staff think we're doing a good, good job. Some people might disagree, but why should we face any more criticism? <laughs> Simply because, uh, some of your men didn't, didn't attack. Perhaps if they shown a little more valor, you would have taken the anthill. I mean, I don't know if he really believes that or not, but it, at least it has the, it has a sort of, uh, beautiful, symmetrical, oh, wildly a, evil logic. He's always
0: hyper aware of the situation. The way he deals with Dats is very different privately than when uh, General Monroe is around. Do you, when Monroe's around, he praises Dats more because he knows it gets under the other general's skin. And then if if the other guy's flustered, he's not in control of the situation. That allows do you, uh, the first general to do be you more in
1: charge. Broulard thinks that Dax is angling for Miro's job.
0: I think he hopes for that. Well, when he when he says it I think, to him, he I, I think deep down he thinks, yeah, if he gives the guy the promotion, the guy will take it. That deep down, all men are greedy.
1: Either way, he wins though because he's able to keep the upper hand. Oh yeah. So it it doesn't matter whether or not he believes it. He, either I think way, he's that,
0: just looking for the next way to get a hook into Dax to make him do what he wants because there'll be something else in a week, a month, a year.
1: Well, someone has to fill that position of of Mm Miro. It won't be Dax. They're going to bring in someone else. It won't be Broulard. Broulard is so far removed from any of the action that, that, I mean, that becomes a symbol in and of itself. The only time you see him doing anything is he's he's sort of dancing in the waltz, but he also dances through that first, uh, that opening sequence. Which, uh, is very, um, choreographed, very highly mm-hmm. choreographed. I also like, um, the contrasting settings and the way that Kubrick plays with settings and the way he plays with light and distance and, and how open Moreau's office is compared to Dax's office or Dax's, I guess, dugout on the fronts. Yeah. So. That's oh, one of the things I like.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, again, he's trying to show that this war is very different for you depending on your rank. Hmm. And how even just having a little bit of rank, you know, if you're Lieutenant uh Roget, things are not too bad for you. You get to get away with a lot of stuff, even though you're the lowest ranking officer. You still have a lot of power over the enlisted men, and those are the people you tend to deal with. Until the... uh until the colonel gives you an order, yeah. which, I mean, how often is a colonel dealing with a lieutenant? There's no, probably captains and majors in between that, normally.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I know that he orders them on the reconnaissance mission that sort of sets the, up the whole uh, inevitable sequence of events for Paris. Yeah,
0: the nightly recon mission. Um, the The other thing that I like about this film is that there's a great companion piece with it. Did you ever watch Tales from the Crypt?
1: I have seen Tales
0: from the Crypt. There is a great Kirk Douglas episode set during World War I where he is a general and his son, Kirk Douglas, the, the lesser of the two Douglas brothers, is a sniveling coward who deserts his men on the front and ends up uh, getting court-martialed for being a coward. And Wait, Douglas is, has to deal with him.
1: Is this the T V show Tales yeah, from the Crypt? Yeah, this is oh, the okay, TV thought, show a movie Tales. Tales from the, the Crypt. Crypt. Well it's
0: it's an hour, hour and a half long episode. Okay. It it won some Emmys. Hmm. Uh Douglas got some acting uh awards for his performance as the general. And I'm I mean, hmm. i will not ruin the end because I'm not sure a whole lot of people have seen it, even no, I, I mean it seen came it. out in like nineteen eighty one. Where can I see it? I'd imagine, you know, like streaming Amazon or Netflix, huh, maybe, maybe YouTube. YouTube. Yeah, I, I'd always wanted to show it to my students, but there's a little bit of language. I mean, Tales from the Crypt generally would be R-rated fair.
1: All right, if we find that, I guess we can put in the show but notes too. It,
0: maybe a link. It does go well with Paths of Glory, and clearly they got Kurt Douglas for that role. This is set in World War Two. World War One.
1: Oh, it's set in World War One. Wow. Yeah. All right.
0: Yeah, he plays a French general, and I had seen this episode when I was a kid, and I've talked about it with my students before, and just, you know, with the way Tales from the Crypt plays with your expectations.
1: So wait a minute, it's not, it's a TV show. It's a TV show. So it can't be R-rated.
0: Tales from the Crypt used to have a lot of language, nudity, and well, violence. Oh, it was on
1: Showtime or something, or HBO? HBO?
0: Yeah, this is season three, episode oh, 14. Oh,
1: with the Crypt Keeper.
0: Yeah, this I is the episode that. called Yellow. I mean, uh, I don't remember the episode. August 28th, 1991. Yeah, huh. and it stars Kirk Douglas and um, Eric Douglas, and I'm looking it up right now. Apparently, it was directed by Robert Zemeckis.
1: Oh, so it is in, uh, if it's on HBO, I bet you I can watch it on HBO yeah. Go.
0: But this is, a, a, I was just thinking about this while we were talking, but this pairs really well with <laughs> Paths of Glory.
1: All right. So, One of the questions I ask my students about the movie is, how does it end on a redemptive note? Mm-hmm. Like, they don't know what that means necessarily, so trying to wrangle with that is hard for them or difficult for them. They don't understand the question as much, but it becomes clearer to them, uh, when I tell them what the, the, the lyrics of the, of the song that the girl is singing. What do you think of the ending of this, of this movie?
0: Oh, it, and why, why the, it could be redemptive?
1: Maybe you can answer that question as well, but I'm just wondering, because for me, I, I have no qualms about saying this, I tear up every single time. I, I don't know if now it's like a Pavlovian response <laughs> or something, but... Well, what are you tearing up towards? I, I don't know, but the last time that I played, because I played it twice this year, I left the room. Hmm. I just went in the other... I, I went out and I talked to Miss Macklin in the hallway. <laughs> until i knew that the the song was over it was it's it's the song and it's the it's the transformation of the behaviors of the men to that to the girl's singing voice now i think that the song itself has some emotional qualities to it as Mm -hmm. well but i'm sure that they're associated qualities that are causing me to to make these uh emotional leaps I'm imagining that you don't have that same response, but I'm wondering how you do respond to the ending.
0: I think of it more as, a, I like the comradeship in there, that all these soldiers are pulling together and they all feel as one. After so much of the film has been about pulling men apart from each other and that there is no brotherhood in this war. Everyone's just out for their own sake. But in this last scene, they're all coming together. They all realize they're having a shared experience. Even though it's very sad, and you know they're probably going to die, but they're in this together
1: for me, it also extends to that to the girl I think that the she's only the the only woman that you see other than some of the characters in the in the uh waltz sequence mm-hmm. she's the only female character that has any sort of significance She has to be that character it's a German girl who's been captured somehow she winds up with these French soldiers she has to be fearful for her Mm -hmm. at least her uh, I don't know she has to be fearful of of rape she Mm -hmm. has to be fearful of I mean these guys are pretty violent towards her especially for 1957 I mean
0: well and they're rowdy and
1: there's also probably uh, haven't
0: seen a woman for months on end
1: there's a lot of phallic imagery going on in that sequence when you show those characters and they're they're rabid towards her. They're they're violent. I would suggest I mean, I, I know Kubrick's working in metaphor here, but that the effect of her song that calms them and then brings them to that realization that you were talking about is probably the, the thing that creates the emotional response in me. More than
0: Well, the, and that there's still a redemptive quality to the world.
1: Yeah, but that that things
0: don't have to be brutal and ruthless, and that you know we can still become civilized, and you know we can change, and that beauty can still come at the end of this horrible thing.
1: But there's inevitability in this in the lyrics to the song. the song is the Faithful Hussar, which was a World War One ballad that all of those um the people fighting it would have known. The words, even though they couldn't necessarily understand the German, mm-hmm. there's, a, there was a French uh, version and an English version as well. And they knew the tune. So they knew what she was singing. And it tells the story of, um, a soldier whose love, his girlfriend begins to die. He gets word of it on the front lines and he travels all the way to, uh, to, See her before she dies. And when he gets there, she's dead. Hmm. So there's that sort of feeling of inevitability which plays into it. I think that's another part that sort of makes me a little emotional. Um, I'm I'm sort of like trying to figure out Perfect whether likes
0: to end his war movies with songs. I mean, this one's a little more powerful than uh, Mickey Mouse Club at the end of uh, Full Metal Jacket. Huh. They go marching off singing M I C K E Y M O U S E. Mickey Mouse.
1: Do you think it would be better to show them the lyrics to the song before or after the girl sings it? And have that conversation with them?
0: Yeah, I've, I'm I'd, I'd be done tempted to ways. slip it in as like a poem or something. I actually much earlier a, in. And in one unit. of the tests
1: I use that as a poem. Uh or as a the poem to analyze. One of the tests I have, I don't think I did it this year. But when we do the test at the end of the, at the end of the unit. And then I ask them the same question about redemption and the rights of redemption and how, whether or not people have the sort of force of evil in them or whether or not they're good. And I think that that, that might be the, that might be the exam question. Hmm. Should I be releasing this now? Yeah.
0: That's alright. <laughs> they've made it to the end of this. Yeah. I don't, think, I don't think
1: I don't think have to
0: worry about it. Yeah, but no, I, I think it works well as a Stanley Kubrick film. I don't think parts of it are as polished as well as his later films. Well I means, mean, there's definitely there's pre 1960 Kubrick and there's post 1960 Kubrick. You know, whether you uh, probably yeah, 60 Spartacus. That's probably the end of you know the first half of. Kubrick's directorial career, and then probably Lolita kicks off the second half.
1: All right, well, I don't. I mean, I haven't thought about him as an auteur having different segments of his you know life that you can that distinguish between. But
0: I mean, he's more famous for his the second half of his career, I would say, than the first half.
1: This movie deserves a lot of credit, though. It does, I mean, and I'm glad that we're taking the
0: time it. to talk about it. Maybe one day we should do The Killing.
1: Maybe that might be a classics
0: i don 't know if we want to do Lolita,
1: probably not, although it wasn't r rated or anything at the time. I know was that still under the Hayes code? No,
0: it was pretty scandalous
1: back then. um well, the book was clearly i don't think that the movie sort of played for laughs
0: yeah. well now i don't know i i've seen bits and parts of the movie I've never sat through the whole thing.
1: I think we watched it a couple of summers ago. The uh Magastar and I watched it and read the book. A little book club thing that we used to do. Yeah. Now I spend all my time trying to figure out box office numbers and,
0: <laughs> and where they might wind up. And you're doing a much better job of that than I am.
1: Uh so what is, so
0: our listeners do, do want to do know. Do you really want the update on this? Or I should think this they do because the, I mean, people
1: need to know whether or not they need to get together names or math problems.
0: All right. Um, well, after three films, you still have Jurassic World coming out June 12th. Uh, you have so far made $137 million at the box office for Woo! the opening mm-hmm. weekend for those three films.
1: Wow. Pretty good. Pitch uh, Perfect 2. Uh, what was my other one? Home?
0: Uh, longest, longest ride, ride.
1: Ooh, And that wasn't very good
0: either. No. Like, and you had San Andreas. Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. So you made 137 million from those three films. Wow. Um, all four of my films have played: Paul Bart, Hot Pursuit, uh, Mad Max, and Tomorrowland. Uh-huh. And the four have done 126 million. All right. So what I need to have happen (laughs) next week is for Jurassic Park to make negative fourteen million. (laughs) It's not possible. They they have to pay fourteen million dollars to be able to come watch it. Yeah.
1: Send in your names.
0: Well done. Send in
1: your obscure names for
0: your pick of Pitch Perfect two was well done.
1: Now, do you want to double down? How so? You take your entire box office. Versus my box office for this one film, <laughs> one
0: hundred twenty-six million for three. That's days. a pretty good bet for you. It's interesting. I, I could see All right, Jurassic no, World I, doing. I am removing that.
1: it. Yeah. I am removing the challenge. I am removing the bet. I got scared.
0: Honestly, I was scared to take it. <laughs> if no, Jurassic, I, if if Jurassic World does over one hundred thirty million, I wouldn't be surprised.
1: I, I, I. Sincerely, want to see you. Have to read some of the names they come up with. Have we decided on a number?
0: No, we haven't decided. We'll we'll figure it out. We'll see what submissions we get. We do need to come up with a summer bots office challenge.
1: We do, and we'll do that. We'll start that next week. After, uh, we'll do that with the next we laugh maybe.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll do that. What's we'll, our next show? At least be? within the next 2 weeks. Uh, we, we haven't fully decided. I know we are going to see Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yeah, there um, we go. at the local community theater down in Norfolk um, because the Registar is starring in it.
1: What do you think you might see Spy this weekend?
0: Probably not. <laughs> Probably if I if I'm going to the theater this weekend, I'm going to be a little busy.
1: Oh yeah
0: all right um mm-hmm. I gotta get caught up on other stuff so we've got what's that. up in the air right now yeah uh, we'll definitely be reviewing Jurassic world in the coming weeks and also we have to make our pits for the first half of the year maybe do our top five films is so it, far
1: is it the f- oh I don't we're okay. getting pretty
0: close and right. I'm not sure how much the summer blockbusters are swaying you and we we'll high next
1: road gonna be up there
0: yeah but you know that's already out so I mean that. that's what's coming in the that's what's coming up. If you have ideas for future shows, um, what could they do? Well, I guess, guess they could ideas? contact
1: us on the Facebook at www.thefacebook.com slash the laugh podcast.
0: Yeah. What if they don't have Facebook?
1: I guess they can go to Twitter. We're at uh twitter dot com backslash the laugh podcast. I don't know. How does that Twitter thing work?
0: Uh, they just have to uh, send us a tweet at The Laugh Podcast. Oh, yeah.
1: You could tweet us at The Laugh Podcast. There's another way to.
0: com. Yeah, we have a comment section to and, contact us. Uh,
1: what we really want, though, is for you to go to iTunes, give us a review, and a positive review, hopefully, but also give us some uh, commentary down there, some written reviews, I think iTunes likes to see that. I haven't looked at what we've been doing on iTunes recently. We we were stuck at thirty three for a while. Yeah,
0: we haven't had many reviews, but you can search either uh, laugh awesome. literature and film. We laugh. Also, I always make sure to put in that we're searchable under the word awesome. <laughs>
1: so hashtag awesome. Yeah,
0: I'm not sure you know how high our results will be, but you know, start searching for us on awesome. Scroll down so we can come up
1: It'll uh, be a we, top
0: ten awesome hit. Did
1: you see where uh, Milan Moomin? Uh, retweeted a tweet I put out. Really? Yeah. Uh, I found Albert or, uh, Camus' Nobel Prize acceptance speech, mm-hmm. and I don't know where it was, somewhere, and I, I sent it out as a tweet, and then Milan movement retweeted it. So it, Milan's out there. Nice. paying attention to what we're doing on the Twitter.
0: We got a fan. We're eager to see what he does We need nice. to do
1: some more Twitter views, too. We're the king of the Twitter view. The Twitter... The Twitter view, or yeah, we were making an interview on Twitter.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Cam and
1: Crow didn't respond to anything we had to say, and
0: I didn't write those questions.
1: But we got uh Dolph Lundgren to respond to us, so. <coughs> we
0: and did get the uh, Dolph. Alex
1: Garland. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so yeah, we're out there in in the in the world. I'm gonna. Oh, you know what? You might get a friend request from Herrera Rue Lusk because he's out there too on the Facebook
0: sounds good so yeah yeah. you can't friend the Laugh Podcast but you can friend Herrera Rue Lusk yeah yeah. good
1: luck finding that alright fair enough so there we are this has been a pretty good show there Mr. Two Frames I enjoyed it I enjoyed talking about Paths of Glory with you I enjoyed talking about movies with you in general according to Corporal Paris oh well I must be mistaken then sir an officer wouldn't do that a man wouldn't do it only a thing would. The sneaky, booze-guzzling, yellow-bellied rat with a bottle for a brain and a streak of spit where his spine ought to be. You've got yourself into a mess, Lieutenant. <laughs> for Mr.
0: Two Frames over there. There be dragons. On the l train. Oh wait, it was a pleasure. Pox there o- will be dragons. Poxo of everybody.
1: Right, it's the good stuff yeah laugh podcast i'm uh i, I can't remember myself su- my uh, i don't know i
0: was thinking i was you're like it's good stuff i'm like yeah <laughs> there's no <laughs> energy yeah No. Energy. Yeah, no my, my bad
1: <laughs> i'll try to think of the thing it's the good stuff yeah laugh podcast welcome back people Woo-hoo. Uh, This is a classics. This is one of our math. Uh, yeah, that's a stupid opening, too. I didn't introduce you. I didn't introduce myself. Well, you hate to do that. Apparently. I need to write it down. I think I need to write it down. Just have a script. Yeah, now that I'm nailing it on my end. Yeah, now that you're nailing it.